Hi, this is Krista Potratz from the Life Challenges podcast. We are all very excited here at the podcast about our upcoming 100th episode. We can't believe that we have almost recorded 100 episodes. And uh, in this upcoming episode, we are hoping to answer questions that you have and share any comments and feedback from our listeners. And so we are asking our listeners to please submit comments and questions and feedback to us. We'd love to hear from each of you. You can reach us, as always, on our website, which is lifechallenges.us. And you can also email us directly at podcast at christianliferesources.com. Again, that's podcast at christianliferesources.com. Our 100th episode will air August 29th. And we are asking for feedback to be in by August 23rd. From now until August 29th, we will be showcasing some of our earlier episodes. This week, we'll be replaying the modern-day pro-life movement. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, here's your opportunity. And as always, feel free to check out any of our previous episodes. So we hope you enjoy, and we'll see you back with a fresh new episode on August 29th. Welcome to the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. People today face many opportunities and struggles when it comes to issues of life and death, marriage and family, health and science. We're here to bring a fresh biblical perspective to these issues and more. Join us now for Life Challenges. Hello and welcome back. I'm Krista Potratz, and in today's episode, we want to look at the modern-day pro-life movement. I am joined here by pastors Bob Fleischman and Jeff Samuelson. Today, we want to take a look at abortion. In this episode, we'd like to cover some of the history and look at where we are today as a pro-life movement. This is still such a big topic uh, in America, especially as we are nearing almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade became legal on the national level. But this uh, was really an issue even years before then. So what are some things that people should know about the abortion movement before Roe v. Wade? Bob? A lot of times, uh, history is pendulum swinging. It's a response that almost goes too far the other way in response to something that went too far a different way. Uh, a good example was, uh, this goes back to the Comstock laws in which uh, it was deemed illegal to use the Postal Service or anything like that to transport information related to birth control, anything like that. And so then there was a pendulum swing too far the other way. The Griswold case of 1965 argued about the right of a married couple to be able to go to a counseling clinic to get information about birth control. There they established an implied right to privacy that permitted that to happen. So then you get into the sexual revolution of the middle 60s, late 60s, and then um, 1970, New York was the first state to legalize abortion. Other states began looking at it. Uh, Ironically, even here in the state of Wisconsin, out of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, there was um, the start of Wisconsin Citizens Concerned for Life uh, began even before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1973 of a right to abortion. 
Uh, but all of this was pendulum swinging because things were restrictive. You know, Comstock law was very restrictive. And then it went over the other way. In fact, it prompted uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1984 to state um, in a paper that one of the problems with the Roe v. Wade ruling, which she did favor, she favored abortion rights, one of the problems was is that it came across too quickly, that the public had not been immersed in the culture enough to be more accepting of it, which, of course, is kind of a foundational progressive uh, approach to the Constitution. So we, we got abortion rights because people just weren't patient. They want, people who wanted abortion uh, wanted it and wanted it now. They got it now, and it's been fighting for almost 50 years. So when Roe v. Wade became legal in the 70s, what was the response with the pro-life movement? What did the pro-life movement look like back then? Two, two big deal things happened, uh, for those of us old enough to remember those things. is Between Christmas and New Year's, Harry Truman died in uh, 1972, and Everyone had television, and it was a big deal on TV. It monopolized the entire television audience. And But Bess Truman wanted the, the funeral kind of downplayed and everything. But, of course, the news media kept reporting all the things that had happened during Truman's pre- presidency. And then what happened is that on the day the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade, we had another death of a former president. It was LBJ. Uh, he had died. It was unexpected. And um, then again... Most of us didn't even know. We have a we have a copy here someplace um, of the Chicago Tribune, and there's this huge picture of LBJ, big headline, and there's this little column over on the left that simply says the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion. Most of us didn't know. I was a student at Badger High School in Lake Geneva, and um, my instructor for political science was a member of our church, and we never even talked about it in political in poli sci. You know it. Uh, just kind of went unnoticed, and uh, it wasn't until about two, three years later. I mean, I had heard about abortion in my during my senior year. I knew a girl who was taken down to Chicago to have an abortion, but I didn't know really what that meant. And then when I got into college is when I was really exposed to the issue. Now, the pro-life movement, to my surprise, was kind of ahead of the ball. They saw They saw the dominoes falling. Because by the time the Supreme Court ruled in 1973, we already had legalized abortion. I believe it was in California, New York, Colorado, and I think North Dakota. They had liberalized abortion laws. So there was already a steamroller thing. But a lot of people don't understand what happened when the Supreme Court ruled is that states that had pro-life laws, like the state of Wisconsin, would still have pro-life laws on the books. They had just been overruled by the U.S. Supreme Court. That's why it began this incredible, uh, ongoing, nearly five-decade debate over um, overreaching of the court because it overreached many of the state's uh, own legislative statutes. So the pro-life groups in the various states, uh, some of them were way ahead of the ball on this. They knew it was coming. They tried to warn people, but nobody was paying attention. Anything to add to that, Jeff? The truth that many thought that the court, or and perhaps you know, the court was thinking when they they made the decision in Roe v. Wade that they were saving the country from a long drawn out awful fight over abortion by just deciding the issue. 
um, and of course in a very undemocratic way. And the reality is they made it worse because they completely sidestepped the legislative process. They've sidestepped democracy. The uh, people of the United States never voted on this. It was nine men on the Supreme Court ended up ma- making this decision. And again, there were states that were, mo- you know, that had moved to legalize abortion. We, of course, don't think that was a good thing, um, but they had done that, and that had been voted on in their state legislatures. So at least there was a process. At least there was some awareness in those states. But many of the states where it was still uh, illegal uh, to to have an abortion or to provide abortion services, it hadn't been much of the same kind of issue. It hadn't been discussed. And all of a sudden, it was imposed upon them from above. And and that that got people, shall we say, passionate about the issue uh, in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have to. I've heard people on on the more progressive pro-abortion side even say that Roe v. Wade was a mistake um, because it uh, it got people riled up on on their opposite side, and they've done more as a result. Whereas if they just let 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 things develop more naturally, there never would have been the pro life movement uh, that that we have, you know, that did develop and and that that is still around today. It's a counterfactual. We can't know if that's really t- true or not, but uh, the, the argument is a a reasonable one. Now we've had Roe v. Wade for years, and we are seeing now that there may be a chance, probably as good as any, to have it overturned. Is that really the answer? Two questions here. One, what really happens uh, if it gets overturned? And then the second, did we just make our battle bigger? If Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, and there are lots of people on the pro-life side who are now very optimistic that that's going to happen uh, this term uh, since they took up the, uh, what it's called, Dobbs versus Mississippi, I believe is the name name of the case that the court has accepted. I think there are a lot of pro-life people who, well, even people on the other side of the issue who are uh, thinking that, well, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then all of a sudden abortion is illegal throughout the United States. And that's not the case. What it means is that everything goes back to the status as it was before Roe v. Wade, which means that states that ha- currently have anti-abortion laws on uh, on the books will have those those laws will stand, and states that have pro-abortion laws on the books, well, those will will stand. And, and though I said you know the status before Roe v. Wade, actually in in some respects it's worse now because the state of uh, uh, New York and state of Vermont, and I think there is one other, Illinois, have uh, just in the last two or three years passed some really horrendously uh, um, pro-abortion laws, uh, and, and clearly that's going to be the law there uh, if Roe v. Wade is is overturned. Uh, but on the other hand, there are a number of states that have passed uh, very positively pro-life laws that strictly thinking that, well, if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned, then we're going to make sure that we're ready, and nobody's gonna, nobody in our state is going to be able to get an abortion because at that moment, um, you know, abortion will no longer be legal in those states. So, yeah, it's um, we're, we're not going to go immediately to having uh, no abortion, no legal abortion in the United States. It's going to be up to the individual 50 states and, and, and the various territories. Now, Krista, let me ask you a question. Uh, as the as the female in this in this threesome here, the uh, uh, what would you do if you wanted an abortion living in the state of Wisconsin 
let's say the um, court overturned Roe v. Wade, and you found yourself in an un unplanned, unwanted pregnancy, what would you do? Uh, what, what would you do if Wisconsin said no? You know, in other words, the pro-life laws that are in existence go back into effect. Uh, probably drive to another state. It's funny that you bring this up too, because I had looked at a book that was a pro, uh, a pro-choice book, and it outlined what was going to happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned, and it had um, almost like a map of like where you could go uh, to get your abortion. Well, and they've often talked about the creation of an abortion underground railroad. Well, and from a from a biblical perspective. A lot of times I, I'll point out to people that you go from having a million people a year in, this, in the United States that were getting abortions of one form or another, chemical or otherwise, now being told you can't. So from a, from a biblical standpoint, you haven't fixed the heart. You know, you've, you've changed the laws, but you haven't fixed the heart. And um, you, you had asked earlier, does this mean like a bigger fight and so forth? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, up until now, um, state pro-life groups were working very hard to, to protect existing pro-life laws, strengthen them, understanding that Roe v. Wade had the supreme voice over it. Uh, now, you know, you're going to see this turn into 50 states and the U.S. territories all wrestling and fighting over this. And it gets us kind of, the question is, where's the church going to be in all of this uh, it's interesting. A few years back, I was doing a little research on what our own church body had done about the abortion issue. To my pleasant surprise, uh, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod was already writing about the abortion issue in, um, you know, two, three years before it was legalized in the United States. They, they had seen what some other countries were doing, and um, they were already writing with concern. And, of course, what is our concern? What why does this matter to us? And it's our concern is that it subverts God's authority over human life. He created it. He redeemed it. And all of a sudden we decide we don't like it. And that's why Christians are concerned. Now, next, you know, next time we might be looking at a little bit more closely as to, you know, are we promoting a theology or an ideology? And how, how do we go about it? And I, I think it's going to be a great conversation because I think it's, it's a difficult and challenging thing to do. But when you understand the depth of which the abortion rights culture has infiltrated society, it's not going to be a an easy uh, train to stop and turn around. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the the this this big ball is rolling downhill very fast, and regardless of what kind of judicial decision there's going to be, um, I think it's going to be mayhem. The Roe v. Wade ruling on a secular level really resurrected an open wound with regard to the autonomy of the states and the uh, strength of federalism. It came out recently. Over the last few years, you've seen marijuana laws loosen up. One of the things that's been an interesting dilemma is that uh, when marijuana started becoming legal in certain states, what do you do with the money? Because the banks are regulated on a federal level. A lot of states didn't allow, most states didn't allow the selling of marijuana. So that one of the problems was is that people who were into the marijuana industry where it was legal had huge stockpiles of cash because you couldn't really bank it because the banks couldn't do it. Well, that's, that's a tension between autonomy and federalism. 
now what you're going to see with with abortion is is abortion going to really be a state's rights issue are you going to literally have you know if you want an abortion yeah because i see a problem coming and that is if you want an abortion you got to go to illinois you got to go to new york if you want to raise a good wholesome strong family that venerates life then you got to move to a state like wisconsin and some other states that have more conservative laws and of course what begins as a small separation in another 50 years becomes a very big separation some have predicted that it could be the decline of the union you know the disintegration uh, of the united states um, yeah and i've actually read or heard some ostensibly pro-life people saying that yeah actually what we, we don't want roe v wade overturned uh, because of the chaos that 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 would result and it's like okay well yeah i mean that is that is a legitimate concern but let's not forget that everywhere abortion is legal there are abortions happening which means that there are babies in mother's wombs being killed so if Roe v. Wade is overturned and we end up with a situation where there are 15 states with, with very pro-choice laws, it's a sad thing, a bad thing that, you know, there are babies being killed in those states and many of them coming from other states, you know, in order to see that happen. But it's a good thing in the other states that that's not happening anymore. And that, you know, that should legitimately make us rejoice if and when it happens. And, you know, with that if and when, I... I Put the emphasis out there again. Pro-life people looking to the court for uh, for Roe v. Wade to be overturned have been disappointed many times in the past, um, and we by no means can take it for granted that it's actually going to happen this time. Uh, it's nice to talk about it as a possibility. What might come, uh, and you know, I, a lot of people on the pro-life side are very optimistic about it right now. Those are chickens we we can't count until they're hatched. See, when Roe v. Wade passed in 1973, there was a core of people who brought a pro-life amendment. Uh, it would be a proposed amendment to the Constitution, a human life amendment. If you read the testimony that was given during those hearings, they're really, they're, um, they're very insightful, very interesting, also very deceiving because, uh, first of all, one mantra that was often spoken is, well, if we knew that it was a life, we certainly would not you know, be in favor of abortion. Because the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade had said that, you know, religion can't agree, science can't agree, medicine can't agree on when life begins. But now even pro-abortion advocates are saying, oh, sure, we, we must recognize it's a sad but necessary evil that a life must die. But the, uh, the other thing that came out of those hearings was the argument that we want abortion safe, legal, and rare. And, of course, obviously they wanted it legal. We certainly can agree that we want safety. But, you know, rare is kind of has opened up the door as to whether there can be common ground. Is there a way in a culture, regardless of how the Supreme Court rules, regardless of where the legislature lands, where we could make abortion rare? And the only way you can make it rare is you have to make the alternative to abortion better than abortion. Now, of course, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the child, any alternative to abortion probably is going to be better. You know, the arguments that it was going to lead to more child abuse if we if we allowed all these babies to be born that were not wanted uh, has not, that's speculative, it's not been proven, uh, but it sure makes a great emotional argument, you know. But what can we do? What, you know, what can we do as a society to make abortion the least desirable of all of the options? 
Um, and it's interesting. You get uh, abortion rights people. They, they were very quick to, to wave a self-righteous finger at pro-life people and say, okay, you talk a woman out of an abortion, but you don't do anything to help care for her, to take care of her. You know? and, and they'll point to different legislative initiatives in which uh, a party might try to block abortion, but then they will also forbid additional food stamp assistance or uh, help with child care or something like that. And I do think that those are legitimate issues that we have to wrestle with, and we have to wrestle with it in the church. I mean, what what do we do in the church? I, yeah. So, Bob, how did Christian Life Resources respond to that accusation that uh, we don't care about women and their babies after we talk them out of abortion? So in 1993, CLR started a home for mothers called New Beginnings. We operated it in Denver till 2014 and relocated it to Wisconsin, operates to this day. And it's our answer to the challenge, uh, do you do anything for them afterwards? Absolutely we do. We, at great expense, we take on the opportunity to, to reflect Christ's love by showing love to them. Uh, we do this, we're trying to extend it into the community now and to, to do things for those who do not come and live in our residential setting. Uh, but we try to do this. You know, if you ever get into the debates with abortion-minded people, they'll commend it, but they're not impressed. You know, they, they still say, don't take away uh, a woman's right to choose. What Christian Life Resources has done with New Beginnings is really amazing. And I also really love the work being done at pregnancy centers as well, too. The one that I've recently visited, they will hand information to um, the people that come in and they'll in their pamphlets, I mean, it does list abortion as a choice, um, but they also really heavily try to highlight the other choices as well. I think just kind of going your back to your idea of the making it maybe a more favorable option to not have an abortion, um, see maybe a different side to it as well. Is there anything else in our conversation today when we think about the Bible and God's Word and keeping that in mind when thinking about the abortion uh, issue in America today. The Bible's perspective on getting people to change their minds usually is first about changing their hearts. We need to be careful as uh, pro-life people, as people trying to, uh, whether it's get laws passed or just convince our neighbor that abortion's a bad thing and, and that, that life is a good thing, or well, whatever it might be. Uh, our goal is to persuade them. It's not to win an argument. It's not to, uh, you know, what, what's the expression, you know, own the libs or something like that, and, you know, score points against the other side. That's not productive. Say that it's also not even Christian uh, to take that kind of attitude. I mean, we, we, when, when we talk about winning, we're, we're about winning souls, not winning arguments. And uh, I think that that's something that we really need to keep in mind, you know, regardless of what happens with Roe v. Wade. Um, the, uh, you know, regardless of where the pro-life movement ends up a year from now or, or 10 years from now. It's about changing people 
changing people's hearts, changing people's minds. What's the only thing that can truly change hearts? It's the gospel. Uh, and that's so really where we, we want to, to be. We want to get to that when, when we can. Yes, as Christian citizens out in the world trying to make a difference, you know, we're going to sometimes have to make arguments that don't involve the Bible at all. Uh, in fact, it's often a surprise to people on the pro-choice side that there are uh, pro-life arguments that have nothing to do with the Bible, <laughs> and very strong ones at that. But um, since we are Christians, uh, we want to make sure that we're Christian also in the way that we approach all of these issues. Thank you, both of you, for your input today as we talk about the modern-day abortion movement in the United States. We're going to uh, end with a, a book review, and this time I'll take the, the book. Well, the book that I read was Unexpected Choice, An Abortion Doctor's Journey to Pro-Life. And it was written um, by Dr. Patty Giebink, and it just came out in July of this year. And if you love a good conversion story, which I do, um, you will really enjoy this book. Dr. Patty Giebink, she performed many abortions for many years and even worked at Planned Parenthood in the late 90s. And I think that uh, myself and maybe other people, too, uh, in the pro-life movement often wonder how can a OBGYN, a doctor who brings babies into the world, also abort them. And I think this book does show how someone can get on that path. And she definitely outlined, um, you know, why she made that decision and how she could do that. But then she also talks about how just over time through Christians that she met and people that prayed with her um, and for her over years, uh, how her heart was changed. And it really resonated with me, especially with what we're trying to do here and in the conversations that we hope that other people have. And just this idea of really um how, how God uses people to change hearts of other people. So this book really resonated with me in that way. And also just the medical side and then hearing what she's doing uh, with just different legislation now, too. She's doing things with medical consent forms and all of that I just found really interesting too. So definitely recommend the book. Um, it is available paperback on Amazon uh, for about $16 um, or I listen to it for free through a streaming service in my local library. So Now another thing that uh, in that genre would be um, there's some books out there that were written by Bernard Nathanson Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. Bernard Nathanson had, um, was considered to be kind of one of the founders of the abortion rights movement, uh, working with Lawrence Tribe and some of those others. And, um, uh, and then he ended up coming out with videos like Silent Scream and so forth where he, uh, you know, talked about supervising over fifty to 70,000 abortions and all of a sudden realizing he's made a terrible mistake. And I enjoy reading those uh, stories, those conversion-type stories, too, because I, I always like to look at the dynamic. What gets them to change? Mm -hmm. was, it, was it somebody showing them a picture? Was it somebody screaming and yelling? Was it somebody holding their hand? Was it, what, what was it? And time and time again, you always, you know, you know, someplace in there, you run across the story of a persistent Christian who just 
was going to be persistently nice and persistently patient and we're going to get over it and I know we don't get along but we're just going to keep keep at it and I think there's something uh, to that but Bernard Nathanson if you want to look in the the used used books section you know where you can get them cheap look for Bernard Nathanson or uh, Carol Everett mm -hmm. would be another one that uh, had a conversion type experience in that regard. No, I mean, the coolest part probably of the book was just how um, when she was doing abortions for Planned Parenthood, there was a news segment that came out. Uh, a nun saw this doctor on the news and just started praying for her. And then 10 years later, when Patty started doing uh, work in the pro-life movement and um, public speaking for legislation on the pro-life side, this nun saw her and was like, oh, I've been praying for you for 10 years and then reached out to Patty. And and I always think that that's so cool too, just how, uh, I, I mean, I love praying for people that I don't know and will probably never meet. and. Uh, it's kind of sometimes neat to maybe think that there are people praying out there for me that I never know either. So, All right, next time we are going to dive a little bit more in depth into some of the arguments centering around abortion. The one in particular that we hear all the time is my body, my choice. And what does the Bible really have to say about that? Maybe also looking into uh, people that might identify as a pro-choice Christian um, and how we can talk with people about um, those types of issues as well. So hope you can join us next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. Please consider subscribing to this podcast, giving us a review wherever you access it, and sharing it with friends. We're sure you have questions on today's topic or other life issues. Our goal is to help you through these tough topics, and we want you to know we're here to help. You can submit your questions, as well as comments or suggestions for future episodes at lifechallenges.us or email us at podcast at christianliferesources.com. In addition to the podcasts, we include other valuable information at lifechallenges.us, so be sure to check it out. For more about our parent organization, please visit christianliferesources.com. May God give you wisdom, love, strength, and peace in Christ for every life challenge.